0: Hello and welcome to the much-delayed episode 35 of the, I guess that's why they call it the Elton John podcast, podcast. As is now customary, I'd like to start the episode with an apology for the delay between episodes. Um, usually they're inexcusable, but now I think we've gone up a level. I don't know what, what's after inexcusable, unforgivable. That's uh, that's probably where we're reaching. Because there's been so much um, 50-year-on Elton that I've just let pass by. You know, 50 years ago, he's in the Troubadour now, and his life, at least in America, is going to change dramatically. Um, Back in the UK, things would move a little bit more slowly. Um, But he's recorded Tumbleweed. As we've discovered from John Higgins' amazing article about the Troubadour... Robert Hilburn had Tumbleweed when he was reviewing the live show. That, that really surprised me. So he really had a pretty three-dimensional view of what the Elton John camp were offering when he wrote his Rejoice review. He'd heard Tumbleweed, he'd heard all of those songs on there and the range that Elton was getting in the studio and then seen this other animal on stage, no one could really piece it together as one coherent performer. So it was just a phenomenon. That's kind of how they saw him at the time. I definitely need to apologise, though, for the delay and for the general level of ignorance that I've been exhibiting recently. I don't find it very easy to communicate with um, correspondents when I'm not directly recording or offering anything. And I've also been way off Facebook, haven't really touched the stuff for a while. Um, And I've had other things on the go, obviously, like everyone else has. I've had to focus on work, although things vary from being weird to hectic to dead and that unpredictability is one of the major issues isn't it um, but I've also gone into other projects I did my family tree which was an enormous time sponge Um obviously I've not finished it and obviously it's full of errors I'm just a little bit too gung-ho sometimes I just plow on through even if things don't quite add up Um, Anyway, you're not here for ancestry tips, and I wouldn't recommend my ancestry tips at the best of times. Um, I've been uh, doing my own music a little bit as well, um, although I've not really come up with anything complete, but I've had a few starts, which is something. Uh, (laughs) Um, In the meantime, uncertainty has prevailed in elton john land and rocket records where they've obviously been wanting to put out this elton john reissue for some time and they've just been frustrated it means that we've got this quite high level of well at least for me anticipation for what is essentially just a couple of demos although it is does mark the first time that we've had demos on record which is at least a progression that's something new that we haven't had and it suggests that you might see more um, special packaging with those things. It's just a shame that there's no um, release that combines all of the demos that were on the original deluxe edition with the two new ones that we have. That would be pretty essential as well, I would say. Um, although, obviously, we can just gather them together ourselves, and make our own CDs and whatnot. But it's going to be weird um, tomorrow. I say tomorrow, I'm recording this. On the Friday, it's going to be one of those strange record store days where you have to stand in the rain, I think, here in the UK. I think that's the plan. Two metres apart from one another and not really communicate. And, well, they're never the most social events, are they? There's lots of people at the front of the line with their mission and everyone else, I guess, is a um, is there to get in your way. Um, it won't be like that anymore. No jostling. <laughs> we've had a few things that have happened during this period most exciting one for me has been the uh, excellent quality audience recording from a west of the rockies show from 1975 that has turned up recently it came onto Dime A Dozen and then it was uploaded onto YouTube and you know here we've got um, Street Kids I don't think we'd heard this before a live version of Street Kids and it sounds pretty good to me say well done to eltonjohn.com for keeping the very high quality 50-year anniversary articles coming even when the uh, pandemic has delayed it doesn't delay the anniversaries i suppose but it's delayed anything that they might be doing concrete related to that certainly um, with the elton john reissue the likes of me has just taken that as an opportunity to kick The um, anniversary way into the distance, Uh, I guess. That's been one reason why I found it easy not to act on the podcast recently. But um, they've gone ahead with their articles, which have been really informative and excellent reading. They've done the YouTube concert series, which I guess in, in replacement for the live show is something. And I certainly enjoyed the first one. And... lovely to have those things in great quality it's a shame they're not still around like the radiohead public library thing that they set up it'd be great to have a public library for elton wouldn't it and with some nice high quality video and audio they've done well they've kept things moving and you know although this is a lot of anticipation for two demos now you know dragged out over six months and this definitely wouldn't have been their plan but actually it does sustain a bit of excitement. It would be great to have these demos on record as well. Yeah, Although I don't think I need another copy of this album. So anyway, I'm kind of alluding to our guest on the episode today, which is John Higgins, the feature writer for John.com. He's done, well, as we know now, an incredible amount of work over this period for um, the Troubadour show in particular. It's just uh, what an effort that has been for him and the Elton John articles we've got one more due to come out well, I guess that's going to come out on tomorrow for record store day itself and yeah it's just great to have a really decent set of what are essentially liner notes for the album we've never had that before so the depth that he's gone into is maximum and I've got to applaud him for that so we get to hear the bits that he couldn't really fit in today that's what he's going to include in the interview and so I don't really want to say everything twice, um, but there I'll be popping in and doing a few connections, saying some bits that I think I missed out um, during the episode itself, just to make myself sound a bit more intelligent. Hopefully it won't be too jarring me popping in and out like that. Um, so John and I are going to talk about the songs and the album and their recording, but also before that, we we talked a little bit about that uh, period after Empty Sky, the second half of 1969, and just the changes and the developments that were going on and what was driving them. And, you know, a big um, waypoint on that journey was August 1969 when Elton and Hookfoot with Steve Brown behind the controls, went to Olympic and tackled, what did they do? They did Take Me to the Pilot, several stretched out, jammy takes of it. One of them's on the on YouTube, by the way. They're, then they did The Cage, not very successfully, Son of Your Father, which sounds really great. Ballad of a well-known gun, which we've heard on the Tumbleweed Deluxe and Rock and Roll Madonna, which was on the Elton John Deluxe. And they also did this rather reverential version of Border Song. Oh, Moses,
1: I have been deceived. Oh, Lord Moses, let us live in peace. Let us strive to find a way. All hatred cease There's a man over there What's his colour? I don't care He's my brother Let us live in peace.
0: Unfortunately, there's not anything else, anything new from the um, 1969 Olympic sessions that's coming out with the 50-year anniversary tomorrow. Um, which is a bit of a shame because it does tell an important story about how Elton's music and how the team progressed from the first album to the second album. And you can hear that they don't really understand or appreciate the power of the songs. The arrangements are pretty basic. They're band arrangements with a few um, ideas of things coming in at certain points but otherwise they're mostly just hammering these songs out without a huge amount of planning and thought and it tells because you just don't have the layers and the dynamics that you ended up with on the Paul Buckmaster arrangement so there was a massive shift that happened when Paul and Gus became involved and they started to be able to direct the music into the two separate channels, certain songs that were always going to be Elton and Hookfoot songs were held back for the third album. And then they focused on the darker, moodier stuff for the second album. These were the songs that also caught Paul Buckmaster's ear, things that he really wanted to work on. That's what went on to the Elton John album. And for that, they made big plans, massive, orchestrated, funky Everything happening at once, just throwing everything at it musically. And then Elton continued. It was a many-headed beast at that time. Elton continued to record sessions with Hookfoot all the time. He's developing the three-piece from, I think, about February onwards, would be a guess. Um, So all of these different sounds were coming out of one camp. And I think that's something that hasn't been repeated all the time, Elton in the three pieces, starting to find his legs as a performer. It's a magic time, March or so. Here he is talking to the BBC. We've heard this on the podcast before. It's such a great interview. And recording-wise, anything new? Um,
1: there's an album coming out in two weeks called Elton John, and a double album coming out in August, and another album out of, coming out in January after that. Hey, are they? All, those are all planned, or any of them? Yeah, recorded? they're all planned. Yeah, there's the uh, half the double album's recorded. Yes. Is that is that again just a three piece or have you augmented? No. The one that's coming out in two weeks' time is mostly orchestral stuff and with an orchestra, a freaky orchestra, I may point out. And uh, the other double album will be mostly group stuff and folk stuff, yeah.
0: Right. I do so love the sound of freaky orchestra and also the idea of a double tumbleweed. What a great thing that would have been. So anyway, the, the multi-headed beast was leaping into action and all the while Elton and Bernie had been busy growing into themselves as writers. Um, a lot of the Black Album... Songs were written fairly late on. Um, we know some existed by August. The Pilot, The Cage, Border Song and the non-album single Rock and Roll Madonna as well. Um, they all existed when they went to Olympic. Um, first episode at High Antons obviously way older. It was recorded um, at a BBC set- session in November '68. Um, so they gathered all that material together that they had. Then they went on their summer holidays. They went to the Isle of Wight with Steve Brown, Elton and Bernie. They were joining Marsha Hunt there, who was playing. And they saw Dylan and the band. but They didn't necessarily hear them because of the wind and the distance. And then Elton and Bernie went off to Ilfracombe in North Devon. I think Elton said that he's regularly gone on holiday to Ilfracombe and um, went around about that era, something he did as a child. And we now know, thanks to John Higgins's first article for ElkJohn.com about the album, that No Shoestrings on Louise and The King Must Die and I Need You to Turn to were all from that autumn. Whether or not that means October or September, it's difficult to know. Um, your song was written on the morning of Monday, the 27th of October 69, a whole week before it was excitedly brought to Paul Buckmaster's attention. Um, 60 years on is harder to say, could be September or October. Elton mentions it in his letter in November to Danny Hutton, but it could have been around earlier. We do have some copyright registrations, but they're not that helpful, like in the morning, November, Thank You Mama, all the way to El Paso in December. Um, and I imagine that Come Down in Time is from this sort of era as well. Um, as for Grey Seal and Bad Side of the Moon? We don't know, but I would say if it, it would be weird that they hadn't played them at Olympic if they'd have existed in the summer. So I think they'd probably both come a bit later on. And then the only other one that is a mystery um, is The Greatest Discovery. It was obviously written with Bernie's... Um, reminiscences of his early childhood he did a whole series of them um, which most uh, they were collected on his spoken word album um, but I don't know when that project was undertaken Um I'd love to know it'd be great to know on with the interview then and I'm just getting John to introduce himself more laziness there from me and I've said that I don't think he um needs a great deal of introduction, given the kind of people who listen to the podcast.
2: My name is John Higgins. Uh, I'm from the Boston, Massachusetts area in the States. And, oh, for the past seven, seven and a half years, I've been the feature writer uh, for EltonJohn.com and getting into a bit of other trouble along the way. No one... That works for Elton does just one thing so uh, I do other assorted things but for for this conversation I'm the future writer for eltonjohn.com and before I became that uh, and I suppose I actually started as editor of eltonjohn.com but now I'm future writer yeah. and before that I did some freelance writing as well and uh, other projects for the website when there was a different editor
0: in place and, and if you go back a little bit before that, you used to write some pieces for East End Lights, didn't you?
2: Yes, I did, yeah. So East End Lights uh, started in, I believe, 1990, as I recall, and I wrote for it for its first seven years of publication, yeah, uh, starting out with just little my first piece was like i met elton john (laughs) you know write what you know you know basically. Uh, and i had just met him uh the year previously so it was still obviously very fresh in my mind but over time uh, writing for the magazine i got to know some of the people in his management at the time uh, like john reed and uh, unfortunately the late robert key uh, and also people that had worked with him uh, in the past, uh, I was very lucky to be friends with Gus Dudgeon, mm. uh, Paul Buckmaster, and, and others uh, sort of of that ilk. And They are missed dearly.
0: Yes, um, and that kind of makes it the right time to speak to you, because you're one of those few people that presents to us a link to those you know, massive figures in this Elton John album without them it wouldn't have sounded very much like what we have, would it? Well, I'm not sure we would have had a tumbleweed
2: connection. Uh, You know, I'm not sure they would have made it to the album three, would they?
0: No, possibly not. Um, It it was do or die in all sorts of different ways. And the strategy that they came up with, with this dichotomy between the dark chamber music of the album and Mm. the wild weirdness of the three piece, was just Mm. a winner. And I don't think they'd have come up with that on their own. And they certainly wouldn't have had the sounds that we have on that record without someone radical like Gus on one third of the equation.
2: Yeah, Gus and Paul both. And, and yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and, and asking other people like Caleb Coyne and so on about you know, the, the paradigm shift, the dramatic change between empty sky and the elton john album it it it's the more you think about it the, the more it sort of stuns a person i think that uh not to belittle empty sky in any way but to have someone like gus and paul uh, come in and also tried in studio obviously um and and just take the songs that had already they were you know the the songs were already written around the same time as Empty Sky. I mean, first episode predates Empty Sky because mm. you know, he first did it in 68. So this, it wasn't... It, some of it was the quality of the song, certainly. Those were growing. But the alchemy was taking Paul and Gus and the quality of the songs and Trident Studios and turning it into something just leaps miles beyond what it, it, in a sense, should have been, you know, this, in a normal sort of arc of uh, progress, this would have, you would have taken four or five albums to reach this point. And they, they they did it in one.
0: It's weird how everyone can piggyback on what's gone before, is that it is something about human nature, isn't it, that the Beatles took four or five albums to really get there. And then the likes of Elton can see that and then they can do it in one. And then the likes of, uh, say, James Taylor or something like that can see that. And then they're already there. And then they're already adding the next thing. It's that growth that we have, isn't it? That's a very good point.
2: I hadn't thought of it that way. It's, it's very true. And I, I don't think we can also overlook um, the spending of money. <laughs> 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 a vital piece in the, in, the, in the plan, in the process. So, you know, Dick James uh, stepped up. And yeah. and gave the the album a budget uh, again miles beyond you know sort of you know percentages hundreds of percentages beyond uh, the empty sky budget and and they were allowed to do what was in Paul's head and what was in Gus's head and what was in Elton's head uh, mm-hmm. straight away um, so and as you said just a little while ago uh, in a sense thank goodness um, because if. Elton's career had been asked to grow at a quote-unquote normal pace, it may not have.
0: Yeah, he was already a few years behind his peers, wasn't he, at that stage? And it was an unusual-looking character. He wasn't your obvious pop star. Right, the story of Gus Dudgeon first meeting Elton and (laughs) Bernie and
2: thinking for most of the session that Bernie was the lead singer and songwriter in Elton.
0: Was so the, like, who's social awkward, who owns that bit of social awkwardness? Is that Gus or <laughs> is it Elton or is it, who, who else would have been? I, I guess it would have been Ray at the uh, time s- that would have been introducing no, him. Actually, it was Steve Brown. Oh, was it? Okay. Yes, yeah. yeah.
2: Steve Brown did the, uh, did the introductions and the way Gus put it to me, Uh, When I spoke with him at some point uh, in the 90s, he said, you know, Steve never introduces anybody to anybody. So I was just in the room. I didn't know who was who. And I honestly thought that that Bernie, (laughs) the good looking Bernie was the was the leader of, you know, was the 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 act. Uh, And then Gus told me that uh, he followed this up with, uh, mind you, Elton was dressed like a traffic light. So that should have been some clue.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would be a great room to be in. Because by that stage, Gus musically had a, an idea from Paul, didn't he, that there, there was something special afoot.
2: Yeah, and and like so many things with this album, that also sort of depends on who you talk to and what stories you read. Elton uh, mm. came away with the impression, and I guess also Steve may have come away with the same impression, that Gus really had to be sort of talked into this project or cajoled somehow or had to take time to think about signing on and, and the way again Gus put it to me in the 90s and i'm i'm sure i'm going to reference this conversation a lot during during our chat uh he he knew instantly that this was something that he wanted to do that he had to do he had had uh one-off hits prior to that with bowie and and sounds nice and, and so mm-hmm. on but uh he he desperately wanted to find an act that he could develop with or or you know work with over over time yes and as soon as he heard the the, the demos uh, he knew this was that act and he says maybe he just played it cool you know just <laughs> uh, and and so that would have given others the impression that that he was on the fence
0: but he he wanted this desperately should we listen to elton talking about the introduction to paul and gus because obviously there are shades of truth in everything he says and uh, sometimes the stories just get mangled as the years go by but this is quite an early retelling by him from the recording the poet and the pub pianist it was a radio interview that he did in august
1: 73 steve didn't want to produce anymore he didn't think he he could do any more production with me so we looked round for a producer and an arranger and meanwhile we were building a huge stockpile of songs so one day in desperation because I didn't really think there was any arrangers in this country and I I, 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 don't i'm saying it very bluntly that includes all the best ones that uh, everybody rates and i just didn't find any that i liked i didn't think anyone were capable of doing an arrangement to these songs i had so tony hall rang us up one day and said i've got a young guy here called paul buckmaster come around and see him so we went around and saw him we played him all the material we played him your song in fact and he said i can't do it because it's so nice i don't want to ruin it so he said oh don't be silly because he tends to be rather a humble person and we played him, I said, would you be interested in doing an album? So we played him all the stuff and he said, yes, I think it's amazing. I'd love to do some arrangements for you. Okay. And we said, well, do you know any good producers? And he, he'd he actually worked with uh, Gus Dudgeon a lot because he, he was actually part of Sounds Nice, who had a an in- instrumental hit with the Love at First Sight, which was J'Temme. You know? So we went down to see Gus and... Gus sort of liked the stuff and then got to like it more as he heard it. And we decided to plan an incredible sort of orchestral album like there'd sort of never been planned before. A really pop, pop album with a lot of heavy orchestra in it, but with a beat as well, you know, really sort of funky stuff. So we sat down and calculated the Elton John album detail by detail it was so calculated that album we sat down and worked out beforehand what was going to play what and it took a lot of planning we had meetings five days a week you know and we did the album in all live you know more or less i played live i didn't sing live but i mean it was all done with the orchestra and it was all done in about four days and that was the alton john album and it came out and didn't really do much i mean it got a great reviews and everything and my name is Bill but it didn't sell that as much as we hoped it got to 45 in the top 50 albums and went out again
0: it's interesting to hear him talk about sounds nice isn't it when he could have drawn that he definitely didn't want to mention bowie at that stage 73
2: well i have to admit that uh, as an american i was mm. unfamiliar with, with that particular hit song uh I I blame it on being an American, maybe I was just an ignorant radio listener, but uh, I didn't know jetem I didn't know Sounds Nice. I, I do in retrospect, but uh, again... But I think what, here,
0: in the, here in the UK, the only version you hear of that, and I, I haven't looked into it actually, I don't know what position that got to in the charts, their cover essentially of it, but the only version you hear is the Gainsbourg version. Yes, that's yes, so right. I, I, I I, obviously, I wasn't around at that time, but yeah, that one passed uh, me uh, by as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, but people are just Elton in that clip. You just played, and and, and Gus, when I when I spoke with him, he, you know, it's just a, an assumed fact that that everyone knows about it. And I had to stop Gus and say, "What what are you talking about? What is what is term? What just sounds nice?" Uh, but yeah, that's an interesting quote, and there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? Yes,
0: it's, there is. Yeah.
2: I think, you know, the majority of it is, is actually very accurate. I, I think since then, over time, the the sort of sequence of events has occasionally been sort of you know, transposed or whatever, uh, you know, reversed a little bit. Sometimes you see quotes where uh, the, uh, allegedly they went to Gus first and, and then, you know, Gus recommended Paul and stuff. But, but mm-hmm. the, the clip you just heard is... Um, for all intents and purposes, what actually happened. And uh, they met up at the Miles Davis concert at uh, Ronnie Scott's there, which we can all see on YouTube if we want to. And uh, look for those three people, Steve Brown, Elton John, and Paul Buckmaster, in in a very grainy audience uh footage which you can't
0: you're not saying you can see them we can't see them. no 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 just i just one tries what but, an image though yeah. i i based i based my whole second episode of this podcast around that night which yeah. is just such an evocative unexpected thing isn't it that that's where they met
2: yeah because of tony hall and and someone oh. yeah um yeah, I mean, Paul's history with, with, with Miles sort of, I guess, began there and, mm. and grew exponentially. Um, just as a side note, I, I did go to Paul's uh, celebration of life service after he passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, that was in the summer uh, at Capitol Studios in L.A and various people that were there were just invited casually or you know without without any sort of program they were just in, there was a microphone on a stand and anybody that wanted to walk up to it could speak to the to the assembled friends and and uh, coworkers of of Pauls and i was expecting lots of elton stories <laughs> and, yeah and what i heard was lots of miles davis stories just just it was almost there was like the ratio i think was was one to nine Elton to Miles Davis stories. It was, you know, and Miles was a character. Yeah. Um, but Paul, Paul's work with, with Miles was something that he, Paul, was very, very, very proud of. And, yes, and it must have been very dear to him indeed. It's nice to, yes, to have that sort of connection, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and the, the Elton connection, sort of almost the aside connection at first. It was, well, I'm I'm here to forge a relationship with Miles. And yeah, there's this new singer songwriter that Steve Brown is, you know, pitching me. Yeah. Uh, And then lo and behold, bang, zoom, wallop. Uh, You know, they were off and running. Before we get too far away from it, I actually would like to to go back to that that audio clip that you just played of of Elton talking uh, on Poet and Pub because he mentions Steve Brown graciously handing over the reins to whoever the next producer would be. Mm-hmm. And that's true, and that's always been the story. But in my research for the first article that I wrote for EltonJohn.com about the 50th anniversary of the Black album, uh, I came across a story I had never heard before, um, which was that Steve Brown had originally intended to record your song as a one off um have really? you spoken about this in your in no your no okay no um I, I mentioned it a little bit in the article but it's the the information is a little bit deeper but you know when your song was written and demoed everyone that heard it obviously freaked uh and and just said oh my goodness this is this is it uh and steve brown thought that it was uh worth his time as well and he wanted to produce it he steve brown wanted to produce your song as a one-off single so again this is before the black album was you know a a glint in anyone's eye this is this is just they're looking around for the for the next song to put out uh, under the name elton john steve was still elton's producer just Mm. there's no getting there's no way uh, other way to say it and when he heard your song written right in the thick of all these songs that uh, that eventually this sort of singular package of songs that eventually got split up over the next two albums Hmm. Um, steve said i'd like to produce this but it needs an arrangement and that's when the search for an arranger began uh which led them to to paul buckmaster Mm -hmm. and i think for for a good while the understanding was that paul would arrange it and steve would produce it um again as a one-off but as the as the project sort of grew uh that's when steve sort of said you know what i'm not sure i can do justice to uh production wise uh to the level
0: that paul is arranging yes, now that stuff. we're taking this away from the, a small little um single yes, down, and right, and actually right. there's an echo of that in what elton says in that 73 interview isn't there because he yeah. said we decided to do an album rather than a single yeah I just never
2: heard it sort of uh sort of laid out so so clearly in front of me as when I did the research for that article i think it's I think it's fascinating again you you think of these parallel universe almost sometimes with elton and and you know what could have happened is that your song could have been a, a standalone single. I'm sure it would have done very well, but again, mm-hmm. you would not have necessarily had the black album and then everything that came after
0: no. John and I went back to talk about what Buckmaster must have thought of the demos when he first heard them.
2: Those of us that have heard Elton's demos of the songs that made it to to the Black album, um, there's plenty of space there for Paul to work with. They weren't overdeveloped demos Mm. by any stretch of the imagination. And so I think if Elton had delivered something that sort of tried to suggest what the arrangement should be or just sort of cluttered it up, I don't think Paul would have taken to it quite as much. And also, Paul likes his funky beats. Uh, he just, he loves uh, syncopation uh, mm. and, and you know unusual rhythms. So I, I kind of wonder, and I wish I had asked Paul this when, there's so many questions I wish I could have asked Paul and Gus when they were live, and this would have been one of them for Paul. If all the songs had been of the your song, I need you to turn to uh, sort of straight up ballad ilk, yeah would Paul I mean Paul certainly responded to those very much uh but I think it was also the things like pilot
0: uh, gray seal th-
2: and and gray seal definitely uh and maybe even the cage but but I think of pilot first that. That Paul sort of pricked his ears up, even a little bit more. Oh, I can do something you know uh, rhythmic with this,
0: yes. Yeah, which I think was sometimes lost in some of some later um arrangements that Elton had. I mean, there's some great stuff, isn't there, on Blue Moves ry- rhythmically, um, which Buckmaster himself did, didn't he? He did One Horse Town as well, yeah, as another sure. absolutely wild arrangement rhythmically, but. Obviously, those ideas are there in the music, but it took someone like Buckmaster to pull them out. Exactly.
2: Yes, right. He didn't rewrite the song, no. but he, he took suggestions that were in the, the rhythms and sort of amplified them in, in his arrangements in a way, not not volume level-wise, but just in terms of sort of emphasis. Yeah, yeah most definitely. Uh, you know, I, some of my favorite arrangements of Paul's are, are of that style. And, and if you think all the way down to, or all the way up to like Made in England, I, Cold is my favorite song on that album. And, mm-hmm. and he does an amazing rhythm uh, thing that, you know, was there in the bones of the song, but wasn't as much as when Paul was done with it. But so, so it's speculation, but I kind of think that um, the variety of, of song styles, that Elton presented to Paul at the beginning um, was, was, you know, not necessarily the tipping point, but was, was very much a determining factor in, in how excited Paul got about doing this project.
0: The planning meetings must have been a fantastic experience, like the excitement that was, must have been generated in those rooms when they were talking about what musicians they were going to be bringing in and mm-hmm. how they were going to be directing them. For different tunes it must have just felt like they had the world at their feet at that point well i i think so and and it, it strikes me
2: again how how diametrically opposite to empty sky that was empty sky is you think of it uh, or at least i think of it as somewhat of a jam album certainly the the title track and and mm-hmm. the final track on the album These are, mm-hmm. this is just elton and Hookfoot just you know going at it um but yes, they spent what feels like a week before any instrument, any human being touched an instrument. <laughs> basically, <Yeah. laughs> sitting down with you know, I, I envision almost a chalkboard, you know, or or something, you know, like or maybe something that that TV uh, series uh, writers use, like with with postcards on a wall, kind of thing, scattered yeah. around. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know if they went to that degree, but it just the amount of planning uh, before a note was played cannot be overstated. And, I, and they had
0: to select the songs as well.
2: Yes, of the luggage case full of, of material. I, I kind of, yeah, I I'd never again, I never asked Gus sort of how the selection process was. Maybe these things just fell, you know, sort of rose to the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, your song was an obvious I'm sure Border Song uh, Border Song certainly was an obvious Pilot I you know was probably was probably very obvious I think you know once they determined the overall feel of the project I, I think then maybe selecting the songs wasn't that problematic you wouldn't um, there are just certain songs that you wouldn't pick and the thing that sort of strikes me the most about the whole thing is when Elton says it was a week of calculated discussions that's very true but but according to Paul and and Gus Elton really left it to Paul and Gus and maybe to some extent Steve a little bit not in terms of the music but just in terms of maybe the maybe the selection of songs or maybe the sequence of them or something but Mm. elton really didn't participate in those meetings a whole lot maybe he was there in person but it doesn't feel like he sort of contributed because as many of us know elton that's one of his um you know patterns he he always leaves things to the people that he's basically brought on to do the work yeah uh so I just, but it's just, it's just remarkable how these two quote unquote outsiders could all of a sudden come in and totally get Elton, totally get his skills and talent and and his drive and the direction he wanted to go in, and translate that into a cohesive, quasi pastoral, very British, mm. uh, lush uh project in the span of well five days of recording and and a a week beforehand of conversation and then a week afterwards of mixing so a very very short time uh it's just it's just remarkable
0: when you think that he spent a month or more mixing uh captain fantastic (laughs) And, you know, longer than that, I'm sure, as well. You know, it's just stark in comparison how quickly it was done. And it doesn't sound rushed, does it?
2: No, that's a very good point. It doesn't sound rushed. I I can believe it took a week, but I've never mixed an album. So I don't know, you know, how that really works, especially back in the very, very analog days, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where you need as many hands on the board as possible
0: at one time. Uh, Yes, you're right. Mixing itself is a performance.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. and you know you have to do it in real time, right? If you mm. make a mistake three quarters of the way through the mix, uh, I, to my understanding, you can't just stop.
0: No. Uh, no. Exactly. And
2: and then pick up, you know, and then go back a, a, a bar or thirty seconds or something, and you know you have to go back to to the root to square one uh, and do it all over again. The amount of pre planning. I think also contributed to the mixing stage. Yeah. You know, again, they, Paul and, and Gus, and to some degree Elton, heard this album in their heads, again, before a human being touched an instrument. So what they also would have heard would have been, you know, how how the final mix should have sounded. And it was just a matter of, of putting hands on a, on a board to, to
0: get there. I thought it would be interesting to try to plot the sound of this album against the other releases of that era music was trying to get back to its roots by 69, 70 Sgt Pepper's Satanic Majesties that era was gone and it was all about music that was honest less involved and I guess replicable live and just looking at the music that was released between February and April of 1970 we can get a bit of an idea of where things were headed at that time (laughs) Rockwise, the debut Black Sabbath album, came out in this era. It was recorded at Trident. As was this um, Tyrannosaurus Rex's last album, A Beard of Stars, before they became T Rex the other side of the pond the troubadour thing was happening Elton was going to benefit from that enormously and so Joni Mitchell's Ladies of the Canyon was released in early 1970 James Taylor already had albums out there
1: and I dreamed
0: I saw the bombers
1: riding shotgun
0: Three Dog Night were releasing It Ain't Easy, very importantly for Elton, because that had your song on it. Loads of 60s group members, a bit like Elton himself, were bringing out records, solo records, um, debuts as well, like Vintage Violence by John Cale. Liam Russell had his debut, so did Paul McCartney in terms of a proper mainstream album and uh, Sentimental Journey from Ringo Starr. It was all Happening there's probably something stale about that, having people do their solo albums. Um Randy Newman, I guess, was comparable to Elton in many ways. He had a very heavily orchestrated debut album, equivalent to Elton's second album. His came out in 68, self-orchestrated, apparently, although it does sound like the producer Van Dyke Parks had a hand in it to me. His second album, which came out in the first couple of months of um, 1970, was his tumbleweed in a way, a more down-home affair, just some musicians in a room playing his songs. So I guess Elton I was maybe a bit behind, but the songs, I think, are much better, and that's what Elton had going on. Um other things what else was coming out bitches brew came out uh, delaney and bonnie's live album so loved by elton um things that elton would be uh singing himself cucumber castle came out from the bg's brilliant title um and that had don't forget to remember on it um and my lady Dabonville came out on mona bone jack on from cat stevens in that same era so when you look at that crop of music There's a lot of cool stuff going on, but there's not much that's offering the detail, the big picture um, that we get with a black album. But no, it's joining a pretty busy crop of albums, though. Anyway, before John and I got stuck into the album as released, we talked a bit about what extra material there is out there from the classic album era and whether or not we're likely ever to see any McCartney, Beatles-style archival releases. Um, We seem to have a few demos and alternate takes here and there that we know of. Yeah, uh, not as many
2: as we would like, I think. Um, Mm. You know, uh, fans all over the world, myself included, you know, sort of salivate at the idea of, you know, discs worth of outtakes from from the quote-unquote classic albums and every time that Bruce Springsteen releases you know uh, an album of his that uh, you know originally was released as one disc and and now apparently has like four or five because of all the <laughs> demos and and outtakes and so on uh, you know we wish oh where's Elton's version of that and I, that's I'm not just like it was done is it I'm not confident that that's the reality mm. um, but the you know the the version of the black album that's coming on on record store day i think is you know it, it's it's not a hundred percent sort of completist but it's very very cool oh. i think yeah um, and we've got two new
0: demos that don't circulate on there don't we
2: yeah right exactly uh those were great finds uh and i'm happy to say i was i was uh, involved in in finding them um so and and thanks to you know our friend the collector there um one of them one of them was found pretty easily uh so yeah people who have bought all the various versions of the black album already and there are eight of them (laughs) uh so there's the there's uh, let me just run through this because it's just i mean of I think of all the Elton John albums that exist, I think this is the one that has the most sort of flavors to it or variations on it.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, so there's the Black Album that we know and love, as it is, that was released on DJM and then MC or and Uni in the States. Yeah. Uh, there's the German version, uh, which also was released in 1970 and swaps in Rock and Roll Madonna yes. uh, uh, for, for uh, I need you to turn to. Uh, then the portuguese one which wasn't released until 1980 but uh that has i mean that's the only one that has an alternate mix of the greatest discovery with with horns at the beginning instead of strings surely an uh, error which is I, I, I guess so but i i i don't know i i'm i'm dumbfounded as to how that actually came out thank
0: <laughs> god it did yeah absolutely but I, and now bit th- uh, 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 thanks to your article and the uh, tape boxes there we can see uh, evidence that you know that they tackled that introduction separately and and you can i think you can kind of get an idea of why they did it separately can't you
2: yes exactly and and uh yeah i think it's i mean i i spent 50 years again listening to that song never thinking that those were two sort of dis- different pieces sort of stuck together uh, mm. but that's in fact what they were and and yeah maybe just somebody in portugal faded
0: up you know the the channels that gus never faded up or something i, I you can't have know. done that they must have prepared a master from that original mix but <laughs> someone picked up the wrong box from when was it 1980 it was 80, definitely a yeah. pretty chaotic time for djm true um,
2: true it's it's a it's a mystery that i I'm not sure we'll ever sort of uncover, but I, I, again, it's just a wonderful—it's um, a wonderful mix. The horns, you know, a, as good as the the Paul Buckmaster sort of cello version is, the horns are are just as good, and uh, it's not a second, you know, kind of second choice no, kind of. No, thing. it's
0: a different angle, isn't it? Go on, then. That's so three. We have what those. else have we got?
2: Uh, then I'm trying to do these chronologically here. Then we have the—we skip all the way to '95, where we have the uh just the the mercury and rocket sort of reissue kind of mm. version the the supervised remastered by Gus, though, wasn't it yeah the the gus the gus stuff that yeah that he did uh one of his sort of last big pro- if not his last big project for for elton sadly mm. um so no new songs or anything on that, but still uh, uh you know a recording that the collectors need then of course in two thousand four we have the five point one s a c d uh, which I've spoken to you many times before is the only thing I listen to now. I, I don't. <laughs> you've I don't been listen spoiled to the originals for the It's album. Just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, then in two thousand eight, you've got the deluxe edition, which uh, that the two CD set, which came out uh, so nicely done. I thought um, lovely package. Really lovely. Yeah, package. really, really good. I mean, that is that is in a sense the definitive version of this album. Mm. It's still not a thousand percent complete, but it's it's. Uh, as much as you know it's more than anything else and then uh let's not forget the the burberry box set vinyl 180 gram which was uh, again remixed so that came out in 2016 Mm. and that was again remixed or remastered i guess probably remastered yeah, and the, but,
0: uh, there's another one after that as well. The Jap- not obviously the one coming up, but there's the Japanese one um, that came out last year. These the CDs. Do you know about much about there
2: I've heard of this stuff. Yeah, but I
0: haven't actually seen them. And I, they're very expensive now. They're all immediately sold
2: out. Are they worth it? Are they? Uh, Don't, what, what, what do they you. bring to Don't the know. table?
0: Is my question. I, Some, one of those. It's like um, for people who are Sonic adventurers who have got Ooh. the beyond the top level of uh sound gear at home right it's the sort of thing that they would use to say yes i can hear a difference between it makes me sound sound like they're nerds you know we're all nerds for different things i'm not a sound quality nerd um but i'm a nerd oh yes (laughs) (laughs) no raise your hand if you are everybody i
2: mean in one in at least one direction or the other yeah uh but yeah again after the SACD, i sort of you know i sort of stopped uh you know, I sort of kept the cellophane on some of this stuff just because I I know I don't need to hear it again. But then yeah, uh, so we can add that in. So that's now nine versions of this album because yeah, on Record Store Day, uh, coming up very soon, um, we'll have the two LP uh, version of uh, the Black Album. Um, Yeah. Again, you know, remastered and pressed and and includes some of the stuff from the the, uh, deluxe edition And as you say, two new songs or two new-to-us songs, two demos that have never surfaced before. So Mm. I think that just would take up more space on a collector's shelf. That one title would take up more space on a collector's shelf than any other, I think, in, in Elton's
0: catalog. It's not like we wouldn't buy another one if they came out with something that had all of the demos or something with the Olympic recordings. Early mixes, uh, instrumental mixes, someone. Sorry, I'm just being a nerd again. Um, Speaking of instrumental mixes, let's go back to the interview and I'm explaining to John what I've done with the audio of the Black Album for the snippets that we were going to listen to together. For those of us, me included, that don't have a 5.1 setup at home, I've tried playing around with the 5.1s to give my listeners a bit of a window on some of the things that you can hear if you did have the 5.1 set up and you walked up to certain speakers to see, to <laughs> inspect what's going on in certain or corners of speakers. the mix. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to play the first of them now. And I thought since we now know um, the order that the tracks were recorded in, mostly thanks to your article, um I thought I'd start, we'd do it chronologically, and they chose on the 19th of January to start with No Shoestrings on Louise. Uh, here's Elton introducing the song um, when he was talking to radio in Chicago in late 1970. Have I listened to this?
3: I wonder if you mind if I, if I would pick a song from your album here on uni, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about it. Okay. Uh, what I'm interested in is No Shoestrings on Louise.
1: Ah, hmm. That's, a, that's an unusual one to pick, actually. Uh, uh, it was Bernie writing about loose women. <laughs> really. Um, I, don't know that, I don't know if that's just from personal experience and I don't think so. It was uh, our, our Mick Jagger track on the album. On the f- I had an album out in England before, this one, called Empty Sky, the title track, which was uh, dedicated to the Rolling Stones. It was very much sounded like the Rolling Stones. And on this album, We did one exactly the same, and I don't know if you noticed it, but it does sound a bit like a Rolling Stones type of thing. And we tried it a couple of times when we were recording it different ways, and this is the way it worked out. Um, I'd try and do a Cod Mick Jagger impersonation as well on the vocals. So, uh, uh, lyrically, it's just about loser women, you know, we tried to make it as stonesy as possible. And we tried on every album to put a a track for the Stones on it because they're they're another of my favourite groups. On the next album there isn't because we couldn't find one, so there's no use putting, oh, putting one on for the sake of it. But that is sort of a cod Rolling Stones thing.
0: There's not a lot in this tune, is there, John? Well,
2: it's funny. It is Gus's favourite song on the album, and it's Bernie's favourite song on the album. Uh, at the time, I don't know if that still holds true for Bernie. Um, hmm. So it's an odd little ditty, basically. Yeah, it's it's a very unusual song for this record, as as Bernie
0: pointed out insistently should have gone on Tumbleweed. But I think it really does serve to mix things up a little bit on the record it does its job yes it does right
2: it's a, it's sort of a, a you know sorbet kind of thing it, it yeah. breaks up the the palette a little bit in a good way uh, and also it's a good now that we know it was the first song that they recorded that sort of makes sense they recorded it on A track even though the Trident studio's board was 16 mm. uh, and it's just a it's just Elton and a band it's you know there's there's no Orchestration, obviously. There's no horns to it. Uh, the only overdubs are the backing vocalists, uh, and maybe the percussion is overdubbed as well, yeah. possibly.
0: Yeah, there's, um, there's a little bit of conga on there, isn't there?
2: Yeah, yeah. Dennis Lopez plays congas on that, so it's just, it's just it for not in a derogatory way, but it's it's a nice, simple little song.
0: Mm. It's a great, it's a really great song title from Bernie, but I always thought it was meaningless, but I, I put it, I applied a little bit of thought to it recently and it occurred to me that what he's saying is if you're going to date Louise, you're going to need to get ready to spend some money on her. So you won't be doing it on a shoestring. I, I think that's what it means. I kind of worked it out. So, because I, I thought he was just making some sort of weird pun on no flies on Louise or something like that, but, <laughs> and it's just like okay, not flies but shoestrings. But actually, yeah, it's a, it, it's not straightforward and literal. But other than that, the lyric is pretty literal in that Jagger style. It's got a few strange words in there, though.
2: Yes, well, the like living life inside thing is, a
0: paper can.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can you can very much hear Jagger singing those. Phonetics, yeah, uh, most certainly. <laughs> um, yeah, well done on on the lyric interpretation. I, I had I, I, you I don't think I've never gone that
0: deeply, I never uh, yeah. really
2: sort of put that effort into it. To be honest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it, it's not one of those songs that really rewards great uh study, unlike quite a few songs on this album. Um, and and you can definitely hear Rob, Roger Cook, can't you, in these backing vocals? He really stands out in the five point ones. Can you hear his voice? Yes,
2: yes, most definitely. That's one of the blessings of five point ones is you can pre- you know, if if you know what to listen for, uh, you can pick it
0: out. But there's not a lot else to draw out here. Well, I. Listen,
2: Neil. If you ever want to do a podcast on 5.1s, which is actually would be stupid because it's no one could actually hear the five point ones in your podcast. It's sort well, that's of like, kind
0: of what I'm doing now, in a
2: way. It's it's sort of like when they try to sell you a better looking television on the television you're watching. There's, there's no possible <laughs> way. Uh, but the uh, the congas really stand out nice and clear on on this one. It it uh, and and the sort of the. the caleb's guitar sort of uh, surrounds you a little bit it just yeah. sort of wraps you up in its in its feel I, I of the songs on the album i guess it would be the least black album e when you think of the black album as a whole but yeah. uh it still shines in five one and and it's it uh, that hook is just it's unbeatable it just is. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying you that. You do
0: want to just get involved, don't you? There
2: I No. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what Gus. Uh, Gus and I, uh, at one point, um, on the phone, transatlantic, me in Boston, Gus in England, in the mid 90s, uh, went through side one of the Black Album, uh, song by song. He. Mm. he uh, we went f- four, three, two, one, and then we hit play on on the, each song one by one simultaneously, so that we were listening to it roughly the same time. And uh, every now and then, I would just say, "Well, what about this bit? And what about that bit? And how'd you do this? And what about that?" And when it came to that hook, uh, he did exactly what you just did. He, he <laughs> said, you know, there's, he just and I put it in the in the article. He just said, "There's no way that I can hit, listen to that song without." singing,
3: Daring ain't
2: no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it probably would never have worked as a single, but as a, as a hook, it's, it's just, uh, without realizing it, you're just, yeah, it grabs you.
0: There's an art to writing a proper chorus and to let someone know, sign point properly, where the hook is, and there is no question with this tune, is there? Yes, exactly, right, right. It's, there's nothing subtle about it. I, I wonder what, why was it cheaper to record... And this track on eight tracks, is it the tape that was cheaper? Is it as simple as that? Because I think, it's the same machine that we're using, isn't it? I right. It would,
2: I, I assume it was the same actual board and, and mm. uh, I mean, certainly the same board and I assume the same tape deck. But uh, so maybe the tape was a factor. I can't imagine it would have been that it much. It seems like factor. such a minimal saving. though. But uh, just in terms of hiring musicians, I think was uh, was the cost factor. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not knowing that they didn't have to hire an orchestra or or anything like that. Um, I, I, you know, why, in a sense, I think the logic was why use 16 tracks if you don't need 16 tracks. Right. Even though Gus wasn't involved in in the earlier Elton John recordings that were done on on lower track machines, um, it's possible that, this was a nice way to sort of um, put test, put your toe in the water a little bit with mm. with the new studio and the new gear and not be intimidated by the massive jump. And I'm saying this sort of on Elton's behalf, not Gus's behalf, because Gus certainly worked at Trident before this and, and was very comfortable with with the machine and the, and the studio. But um, I, I think this was sort of a nice transition, I guess I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, um, it's a
0: warm up. it's like, Let's rock yeah, out exactly, on this yeah. fairly, Pleasing right. little, non-complicated.
2: Tube. Yes, yeah. exactly. I think I think that's the case.
0: Unfortunately, the next one they chose to do um, right. was take me to the pilot, which didn't work out at this stage. So right. you, if you if you look later on, so the right. it's there on your tape boxes. Yeah. Um, they tackled it on the nineteenth, but right. they couldn't make it work. And when they come back to redo it. Um, on the 22nd in the evening session pretty much towards the end of the whole process it's the same musicians as you have for sh- no shoestrings you've got barry morgan on drums alan Whale on bass and caleb on guitar so they that was obviously what it was going to sound like they didn't change the approach but they couldn't get the piano work right could they well
2: yeah i don't know why they they couldn't do it on that first day it could have been the the piano thing that you know, we can wait until we get to the 22nd to, to talk about mm. it in detail. It could have been that. Um, could have been any number of things. I, uh, To be honest, when Gus and I were talking about the Black Album on the phone, as I said before, he actually recollected, and I didn't have any of these track sheets at the time, obviously. I, I, I didn't have much in the way of research or documentation. I was sort of taking Gus at his word, albeit how many years later that was from 70 to 95 yep i forget whatever quite, quite a lot to ask I actually spoke to him, but it's a long stretch and his memory was uh, not rock solid he thought that he had they had recorded pilot on eight track the first day also um so that's not borne out by the track sheets that i subsequently unearthed No. But that was his recollection. We'll
0: come to that later then, as you say. And we'll move on to the following day. I normally check to find out what day of the week these are. 20th of January, 1970. I don't know what day that was. That was the Tuesday. So Uh, so so they they did start on a Monday, did they? They
2: started on a Monday, yeah. It was a proper week. Yeah.
0: We've got Terry Cox for Pentangle on drums for The King Must Die and The Greatest Discovery and i think these ones were done live weren't they with the orchestra again or least, depending on uh, who you talk
2: to but uh, yeah uh, that seems to be the case the, not the vocals not the final vocals the fun, no. elton's final vocal would have gone on at the end of the uh, at, at the end of each day elton did his final vocal
0: this was probably one of the most nerve-wracking ones for elton
2: yeah it is curious i just got through saying that they started with 8-track on the first day to sort of, you know, not have a big shock to the system. Uh, and they started with a fairly simple song and a band song with, with no orchestral overdubs, And then boom! 20th launched right into, yes, probably one of the more complex this and and uh, first episode into to some degree 60 years on, you know, this is one of the more sort of complex songs Dynamically and uh, space-wise and everything to to record, so they they dipped their toe in the water on the 19th and went straight for the deep end on the 20th. Mm -hmm.
0: They knew that this was the final track of the album, didn't they, before they tackled it? Because for me, that last note, um, the last D bass note that Elton plays, has yep. got some post processing no done on it. Um, somehow, they've made it, it, uh, uh, yep. it, it, it similar to the last note of A Day in the Life, where they've really, really pumped it up to try to get the maximum amount of sustain out of it. It could only be the last song, Connor. Yeah, I think I think so. Certainly
2: not to the extent of day. No, yes, I can understand. It's not a natural end. Uh, I've I've noticed that too in the five one. And yeah, I I, listen, if you're going to end a song with, you know, the king is dead. The king is dead. Long live the king. What could you possibly uh, what song could you possibly follow that up with? So yes, uh, it, it makes sense.
0: Much better than how it ends on the demo, where Elton just sort of shouts it out. But, yeah, he, he, yeah, Paul took that and found a really regal, elegant air. Yeah, you're not left hanging, you're not left in, a, in an
2: elevated state. Uh, you're, you're left in a, in a comfortable, um, maybe not necessarily relaxed state, depending on how you feel about the King. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> certainly, uh, musically, you know, it's resolved really, really nicely. And I just every time I hear Paul's cello work, even if he didn't play it, just the fact that he wrote it, you know, all of his, you know, I mean, George Martin was was obviously it goes without saying an absolute stone cold genius in his arrangements. And there were other string arrangers back in the time, no matter what Elton said that, that were worth the money that they were being paid. But I promise you, none of them were doing the cello based low end based arrangements that Paul was and I mm. think that's what to me that's that's what gives me chills every time I hear them he could do top end as well but you just knew that he was writing most of the time from the bottom up as opposed to the top down and I think it that's one of the songs where it
0: shows and I think when they were recording the piano they knew that didn't they so there are certain songs yeah. where that yeah. Elton's not really putting in as much chunk right. as you would necessarily expect from him Right, exactly. That's a very good point. You gotta leave room
2: for what comes later, again because they already knew what was gonna come later. But yeah, mm. um yeah, Elton did well to steer clear of of sonically sort of that getting in the way of all that work, most definitely.
0: I, I, I love second verses. Um come down in time is one of my favorite second verses, mm. but I think the King Must Die is up there with it. It's just got it just opens out into a you just find yourself in a much vaster space don't you and you've got these beautiful picking guitars and it it just has so much
2: wit wit interesting word i would never have used that but i i love it yes i listen we're we're right on the fringe of talking about how music is done now versus how it was done then and that's that's a conversation that is very difficult to get into, but but the fact that they knew how to build an arrangement, not just the orchestral arrangement, but the actual when do things come in, Mm. uh, is a lost art as far as I'm concerned. And uh, you know, on so many songs on this album, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to them, um, you know, that really, you can just tell, yeah, the thought behind it. You you can sort of almost see somebody with their hand on their chin, stroking it, sort of going, mm, let's do, you know, just sort of giving it actual thought as opposed to just sort of throwing everything in willy nilly
0: I'm going to cut in there. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to record an interview with drummer Terry Cox, who played drums on this session. I'm afraid the audio is quite variable, um, but there were some snippets of our conversation that I was able to use and here he is telling me about his work as a session musician alongside a young Reggie.
3: I've worked with him before he was filmed, John. We used to do Top of the Pops together sometimes. But when I was on there, uh, he was on. He was on, Reggie. Young.
0: Do you remember who you might have been backing? Was it typically US artists that you'd back?
3: No, they were mainly English. Oh, really? On that yeah.
0: So you provide live backing for a, a yeah. singer of some sort?
3: Yeah. A oh, a group. The groups wouldn't be able to play and all that. You know, it was ridiculous.
0: <laughs> they just couldn't be relied um, upon in the moment.
3: No, no, I think that was the point, you know. Or there was a union stipulation or something. That was quite heavy in those years, you know. The union, they had all sorts of clout, you know.
0: Do you remember who you actually backed in that way on the Top of the Pops programme? Yeah. Not really.
3: A no. uh, member of the Walker
0: Brothers. Oh, really? Do you think Elton yeah. would have done that one as well? Maybe. I'd, I, or you'd
3: have to ask yeah. somebody who's around him, you know. Fair enough. And, of course, he was backing Singer.
0: We spoke for ages. Terry told me all about the early days, backing Alexis Corner, Long John Baldry, working with Pentangle. I'm going to edit this together, and I'm going to post it as an extra his very first session gigs came by way of Bill Shepard, the musical director of the Bee Gees, who was his direct neighbour. And it wasn't long before he ended up working with Gus Dudgeon on his sessions.
3: I worked with Gus because his wife was the, was the secretary of Transatlantic. Oh.
0: OK, so yeah. Gus
3: was working for Transatlantic
0: yes. Yeah. OK. So...
3: You know, I I can't remember what I did there. I mean, that really is a long time ago. So that was the first time I came across Gus. It was there. In fact, it was probably his wife who rode us in, you know.
0: Yes. (laughs) Uh, That was quite quite a nice introduction as well. So that was your label, wasn't it, Transatlantic for Pentangle?
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: He was familiar with Buckmaster as they'd worked on the Sounds Nice album together and they all worked together again recording Space Oddity, which Terry recalls doing with his drums all covered in blankets. He didn't have many great recollections of the Elton John album sessions. He says that he was in a box to isolate his sound from all the other mics and he was also surrounded by members of the orchestra but he did see Reggie appear and he was quite surprised that Elton was being given this impressive treatment um, because he was just someone as far as he was concerned from the session circuit backing singer. Elton didn't forget Terry, by the way. He went out to visit the restaurant that Terry ran with his wife out in Menorca when he was visiting Sheila, who'd relocated out there as well. In about, Terry remembers this being about 1985, Anyway, let's get into that second track that Elton recorded with Terry that Tuesday, The Greatest Discovery, and here's me and John talking about it. You said for The Greatest Discovery that Skylar Kanga overdubbed her harp, but I don't see how that can be because she's there from the beginning, isn't she? She's, she's what starts the song out.
2: Good point. But from what Skyla so graciously uh, shared with me was her recording diary from Mm -hmm. that day. God bless her for that. And let's just, you know, count. Don't we all wish that everybody still had their diary from (laughs) (laughs) way back when? Uh, But she didn't show up until the 21st.
0: Right. Okay. According
2: to her diary. So this was recorded on the 20th. Yeah. So I just surmise from that, that they did, you know, they used another, again, they would have known that the harp was going to be used. It, it wasn't like they made that decision on the day. That decision was made the, the week prior because of the conversations that they had about the, uh, the songs. So mm. I, it's very possible that they had even Elton doing a piano intro, or maybe Clive Hicks, or you know, doing a, a simple guitar intro, and then possibly mix that down. Yes, uh, yeah. and and then had Skylar sort of either replicated or or you know, or just come in at at that time. That's that's totally my you know for guessing. I, I have yeah. No it's a puzzle.
0: Whatsoever. This one that we've. Between us, we've put a lot of thought into it and we haven't really come up with the right answer. And in the end, it doesn't hugely matter, does it? It's not, a, it's not the end of the world. Should we have a listen to The Greatest Discovery, John? Yes. Are we going to listen
2: to what version, Neil? Are you going to give us a, another uh, breakdown? on?
0: Off- yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a breakdown, this one. It's, um, I think it starts out um, with a massive feature on Paul's cello playing so I've turned that up at the expense of most of the rest of the arrangement and then after that the acoustic guitar from memory I think. Let's have a listen. there 's something magical, I think, John, about the way as that string arrangement sort of mm. hangs in the air, and then it's I feel like it it settles like a blanket, mm-hmm. it just sort of and you can just feel it 's like it 's been um, sort of pushed in the air and just allowed to float back down. It just has that such a relaxing feel to it, doesn 't
2: it I think that's a very good way of putting it yeah, I totally agree i just I... I realize as I'm listening to this now for, you know, what, hundred thousandth time in my life, (laughs) you know, you you still, when you really just stop and take a breath and listen to it, it just gives you goosebumps. And and, uh, uh, as it's doing now to me right now, um, it's a remarkable introduction to a song. It draws you in without knocking you over the head. And I think you're right. I think it just gives you a chance to sort of take a breath take a take a small beat and then
0: and then carry on to the body of the song the great thing that you can realize when you look at the order of recording of these tracks um is how similar the sound the raw sound for the greatest discovery is to the king must die you've got the same more orchestral drumming from terry cox rather than what barry brings right and then you've got some horns alongside the strings, but they're so warm, aren't they? Yes, right. Exactly. They're not. Yes, they're not
2: the frenetic horns of Madonna (laughs) or the Cage or whatever. They're more orchestral. Again, this is the planning, right? They would have decided what sequence they would have recorded the songs. And well, these two songs, we want them to come out sounding somewhat similar uh, in this regard, so uh, and with these players. So let's record them on the on the same day. Um, Yeah, it, it makes sense. When you have sort of the information in front of you, um, and and I'm so very thankful that I was able to uh, come across the, the track sheets that I did. Unfortunately, there's at least one, or possibly two, missing for 21st. Mm-hmm. But uh, regardless of that, um, what we have is pretty brilliant uh, to look at and dissect, uh, and come up with revelations like you just did uh, in terms of the similarity and. the the players and the sound, and I'm sure the EQ, you know, and things Yes, of that exactly. Nature,
0: All um, of those things would, would have play. helped yeah. Gus as well, just as much as anyone else. This is one of those songs that I think a lot of musicians know, but not, you know, unless you actually had investigated this album, you wouldn't know that Elton had this absolutely charming, very simple piece of music written. Well, I,
2: I, I agree, and I will say this, that
0: Again, referring back to
2: that celebration of life that uh, for Paul Buckmaster uh, in Los Angeles, um, obviously what we were all listening to over the studio speakers above us and around us as we walked around and ate our hors d'oeuvres and Mm -hmm. whatever, uh, was was Paul's work, uh, not just Elton, but others as well, uh, but primarily Elton. And then we all, not all of us, some of us, a number of us repaired into the actual control room at at Studio A and Capital, which I have to uh, admit was a life highlight for me, and (laughs) listen to Greg Penny play some of Paul's work in 5.1 in the control room. And the first song that he played was this song. Uh, And that was because Elton had spoken to him the night before on the phone saying, uh, Greg said, here's what's about to happen at the celebration of life, and I'm going to play songs in 5.1 and so on and so forth. And Elton said, Well, can I make a request? And Greg said, Of course. And Elton said, Well, please start with Greatest Discovery. It is my favorite uh, song of, of Paul's, is I think. How and it's he put got it.
0: so much of Paul on it in it.
2: Well, that's a, that's a large part of it, because Paul
0: physically is playing
2: um, the cello, obviously. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It, it is stunning. Um, have you ever heard the song The Art Teacher by Rufus Wainwright? Have I heard not. that song. Not to it's, my knowledge. it's another wistful, nostalgic song. Um, maybe not directly from his own experience, but it, it. having written all sorts of songs and just battled, I've, there's a certain song that I wrote that I was just battling with the chords and the structure of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, trying desperately not to <laughs> go down that route. Um, and it just wanted, it just kept walking back there. The, Rufus with this song has clearly been aware of it he's walked down there and just yeah it's a celebration of that song as far as I can hear I might drop a moment of it in here
3: there I
1: was in uniform looking at
0: maybe it's just me that hears that. Unfortunately John doesn't have the track sheets for Tuesday's second session or for the following day, Wednesday the 21st, so we're most probably missing a couple of boxes, possibly three. We can be pretty sure that the next two tracks were tackled together, that's The Cage a bad side of the moon because the rhythm section is the same for both of them it's barry morgan and alan whale on bass so this is either tuesday second session or some point on wednesday
2: yeah if it was the 21st it would have been their earlier session uh Mm. and and you know they would not have they were trying to cram a lot into this week. So I don't think they would have skipped a session. So it just sort of by process of illumination almost. Yeah. Um, it sounds to me like the 21st early session was The Cage and
0: Bad Side of the Moon. Yeah. OK, well, let's have a listen to The Cage.
2: Yeah, I just you know if there has if there is one skip over song on on an album, this is it for me. I like it. I don't love it. Um, I-, I can't justify why. But the the thing that I think I like the best about this song is Dian- again Diana Lewis's work. She just uh, the, the I went again for a long time thinking that what I was listening to was string stuff or. Um, Horns, horns, actually, not strings, sorry, but horns. And there are horns on the track, but but I totally overlooked Diana Lewis's Moog synthesizer part on this song for many, many years. And now it's all I can listen to in the five ones. It just sounds yeah. so uh, cool. And, and to think that this was you know one of the first uses of that instrument in sort of ever. Uh, and it's, it's the in...
0: same instrument that they used on uh, Abbey Road, isn't it? yes they
2: they yes that's right um that's where they got it from they got it from you know they basically rented it from george martin's uh you know people at at abbey road Mm -hmm. uh listen again you have this album is is again sort of lush and uh pastoral and all those words i probably said before and then uh all of a sudden out of the blue you've got this very modern instrument that doesn't get in the way. It just it it's used perfectly mm-hmm. uh, in the in the arranging of it, which was not something that Paul did. This was Diana Lewis, uh, I am sure, saying, "Let's, how about if we do this?" Uh, and then again, you know, how how high in the mix is it? It, it doesn't overtake the song by any stretch of the imagination.
0: No, so. but in the five point ones, we can definitely hear, and and in the mix that I've put yeah. together, it definitely yeah. is quite impressive how otherworldly it sounds and and, and I'm noticing obviously it's there on High Enton as well so that's another argument for why I know they were both done in overdub but that's another argument for them both being recorded on the same day isn't it I hadn't
2: thought of it that way but yes that is a a good link
0: most definitely and so yeah I quite like the tune it's got balls and it it does interrupt the flow of things but I think it does it in a pretty good way and it's we needed an upbeat song for the album and it is that it's got so much jerk and shuffle and it is quite a sexy song and it shows a different side of Elton, doesn't it?
2: Sexy song. Are you saying this is a precursor to Fifty Shades of Grey is,
0: is (laughs) the cage somehow a sexual? (laughs) You've heard, have you heard my argument before that Bernie was, uh, channeling his own daily experience in some of these lyrics? and that actually as, you know, maybe he was not as aware of it as he would be later when he was explicitly (laughs) writing about being a country boy in the city or vice versa. Um, But he he was living with Elton in Elton's house, um, with his mum, and it must have, in his bedroom, and it must have been quite stultifying for him. And I think some of these lyrics, The Cage, Empty Sky, um th- they're explicitly about being captive some of them are more ethereal when he's talking about being a captive like um, bad side of the moon or even great seal is you know they're, they're sort of slightly intergalactic versions of the same thing about being exiled away from where you should be and and I think he wasn't yeah. even necessarily aware that he was writing about it right. border song being a prime example as well of right. a song of exile yeah, and I think uh, it's an interesting point.
2: Again, you have delved more deeply into this than I have, but I I can't uh, find an argument against what you're saying, so I'm I'm on board with that. And it makes me think of also his obsession with planes, with airplanes. Uh, you've got the song "Planes," you've got Daniel, you've got watching the planes go by. You, you know, there's it's
0: it's yeah, not that's a theme, isn't
2: it? Necessarily pervasive, but it's it sort of always. Remi- each each lyric always reminds me of the other and it just it to me it evokes a, a person in this case Bernie a young boy looking up at the sky and wondering you know maybe not so much well maybe escape or or just you know what is beyond mm-hmm. uh and so not a far cry from from the lyrics to the cage it's you know it's no, they're, more, right. they're more Although gritty it, and
0: nasty but yeah it, it, it doesn't feel like there's much chance of escape in the cage though does no, it no no it's a bit he, of a darker one than empty sky i mean they're
2: right right they're they're probably the darkest bernie lyrics elton wrote music too i mean there there are some bernie poems that we can find in in his in his book from the 70s one Called Ratcatcher, that is, that mm. are pretty effing dark, yeah. but um, but for actually recorded songs, I think this is about as as dark as you
0: get. Now that we know that they were recorded together, it's fun to listen to The Cage and Bad Side of the Moon as a pair. Here's my Bad Side of the Moon mix. It's heavy on the orchestra, the backing vocals, and the incredible congas.
2: To talk about usamala or do we want to leave that, <laughs> leave
0: that <be? laughs> it's quite unfortunate what happened with this lyric because uh, pretty yeah. much everyone who covered it tried to turn it into I, it's not just this is my life but there are other versions as well that i've heard
2: yeah. yeah i mean yes it is a shame uh oh yeah this again this is gus i mean this is just think of uh, Gus making that decision.
0: And having two tracks of backing vocals as well, to be right, able of course, to right, read right. them like that.
2: Yeah, and you wonder, also that reminds me of the story that's in the article, part two of, of the article on com, where, where David Larkin says you know, he would sneak away from his job at Dick James Music to actually do graphic design work, and steal over to Trident a few minutes away, and, and have Gus basically say in front of him David Larkham that uh, sometimes he would record the orchestra twice even though they got it right the first time to to make a fuller orchestral sound uh, you know I, I wouldn't be surprised if yeah. yeah I wouldn't be surprised if, if this was a, a firm example of that yeah. and also you know possibly the backing vocals but just uh, but just the reverb on those is, is perfect as, as well I, I you know Bernie certainly didn't write "Usama The lyrics don't have those No, it's in not there, there is that. No. So again, where did that come from? I guess is one is, is the question that I want to ask the world. Yeah, you know how <laughs> how does someone come up with something like that?
0: Um, I mean, that, I, I know that, that you know? For, as a as a, um, aspiring songwriter, you do syllabalize. An awful lot, so uh, uh, it won't be the same for Elton because he writes two lyrics. But there's still times where he's probably syllabylised a thing and then written the line himself. You know, there's, even on this album, there's, a, there's some lines that are written by Elton, aren't there? Isn't there? I think. Uh, yeah,
2: we'll talk about that in the next song. But
0: yeah, yeah. Um, but that, uh, so I think it's just a bit of syllabilization that is just stuck. And that's the sometimes I find I've syllableized something in a song and then I'll desperately oh, be right, trying right. to find real words that have the sort of phonological feel that that has.
2: So you're saying this is Elton's scrambled eggs.
0: Yeah, Exactly. Scrambled eggs, but brought forward and served <laughs> but, to the public. Warm. That's an interesting concept.
2: I never thought of that because, again, Elton doesn't write the lyrics. So why would he need no, to? No, so but, it's a bit but, different
0: for him. But um, it, but in this case, he's just be. saying, OK, no, there, he hasn't no one. Bernie didn't give him a chorus, essentially. I think is right, what right, he right, was right, dealing right. with. Nothing Maybe so. was really a chorus. So he had to do it himself and wasn't feeling particularly lyrically inspired.
2: Interesting. <laughs> I like that. Now this is another example, as as we talked about earlier, of Paul just going, just taking it and running, yeah, uh, and and not overwhelming the core song, but finding the pockets in the song to strut, basically.
0: <laughs> it's so complimentary. You've got a pretty really simple little rock song from Elton, but what Paul does to it, it just draws it out, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, you can almost fifty years later you. It, I guess it, it helps if you, if you knew Paul, but you can almost see the expression on his face what, you know, when he's materialising this arrangement. Just the fun he must have had. Yeah. You know, I mean, all his arrangements, I'm sure, were very satisfying for him, but this one was probably more on the fun side.
0: So after The Cage and Bad Side of the Moon, the next session that we know about was the Wednesday evening session where they did I Need You to Turn To and First Episode at Hyenton. think we'll break before that or else we're just going to be tackling way too much at once so tune back in for episode two of this where we're going to discuss the remaining songs have a listen to my extractions that I've done and talk about the reception of the album thanks very much for listening and I look forward to seeing you all again then